Welcome to episode 95 of the Roger Snipe Show. The Roger Snipes Show. This podcast is brought to you by Keon Aminos. Amino acids are the catalyst for nearly every physiological function, including protein synthesis. Unlike branch-chain amino acids, which only use three amino acids, Keon aminos comprise of nine essential amino acids. A deficiency in one of them would have detrimental effects on muscle preservation. Keon aminos have bioavailability and are clean. They don't have any artificial additives or preservatives. If you're looking to preserve muscle whilst losing body fat, then these are incredible check getkeon.com forward slash snipes aminos that website link again is getkeon.com forward slash snipes aminos and use coupon code snipes 20 and get 20 percent off at checkout wouldn't it be good to know when you're actually burning fat without guessing and calorie counting well there is and it's with a device called lumen It's the world's first handheld portable device that actually measures your metabolism. Lumen uses a CO2 sensor and flow meter to determine the CO2 concentration in a single breath. This indicates the type of fuel you're burning, i.e. carbohydrates or fats. I use this every morning, just before a fasted cardio, to check whether I'm in fat burning or carb burning mode. This way, you can plan your previous day's meal for the following day. Depending what your goals are, Lumen can keep a record of your breath intake and structure a plan for you so you can meet your goals easier. This device is revolutionary. I don't need to guess and see if it's working after. I just need to breathe in the Lumen and it tells me. Stop guessing and start progressing. And check out Lumen now on www.lumen.me and use coupon code SNIPES10 for 10% off. Yo, what's going on, peeps? Once again, hope all is great and welcome back to the Roger Snipes Show. Today, I am speaking with uh, someone who goes by the name of Rubio. I recently came across his social media page. I mean, this is how it generally is. I'm scrolling through social media and I'm like, do you know what? (laughs) I like this person's page. They know a lot of things. I'm gonna hit them up. That's pretty much how it works. And uh, looking at Rubio's page, I noticed he had lots of uh, infographics on loads of things to do with like, naturopathic medicine health and fitness but it was really interesting the way he was just yeah showcasing his uh perspectives on on food uh, functional medicine and that sort of thing so rubio is a nutritional scientist which specializes in epigenetic facts of food so the uh, food components and biochemistry effects of the food on the ep- epigenome, which to me is fantastic. It only makes sense. 
How does food affect us and our biology and the chemistry and the epigenetics? It's it's really important. I think a lot of people have been accustomed to the idea of uh, eating to fill a hole. It's like I'm hungry, I'm gonna eat. As long as I'm full, then that is all that matters. And it's 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 wild. <laughs> as modern human Homo sapiens, we've advanced in our abilities to yield more in less time. The the more we advance in technology and understanding, somehow we've compromised integrity and haven't really an, adhered to the fundamentals as a human. I mean, that's some basic shit, you know. <laughs> I remember being on Facebook and um, I was on a on a vegan page and one lady was inquiring about a product which said to have honey in there. Uh, she was immediately in dismay as, you know, her food religion had been compromised. <laughs> and um, someone spoke out and was like, oh, it's okay. It, it, it's... It's fake honey. It's not real. It's artificial. And then she was really thankful. She's like, oh, that's great. I'm, I'm very happy to know that it's not real honey and that it is artificial. And I'm like, like what have we come to? You know, we've, we've, we've become a real dogmatic rather than following a comprehensive profile reading of the food you know we don't we don't really look into the food from all angles it's like we just try and find a, a real kind of uh, shotgun approach rather than a wide net so you know we have a fast tracking approach to results which has translated to calamities and disease What we once valued as meaningful has been rewritten or diluted. We've created a disconnect. So this podcast helps to remove the veil of confusion as Rubio gives his in-depth perspective and educated views on health. Let's bring on Rubio. So, Rubio, how you doing, my friend? I'm great, man. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm tremendous. Super excited to have a chat with you, man. Um, after looking or following you on Instagram, I love your content. You know, it's very, not just informative, but you break things down. So, not just scientifically, but you make it interesting. You know, um, you use the, uh, the the infographics and not, not just that, but you you write things in a in a nice in a systematic manner, but you create little stories with it. You make it fun. So thank you very much for doing that. And thanks for giving me your time today. Um, I wanted to ask. So you are a nutritional scientist. 
That's correct. Yeah. Uh, you specialize in um, like epigenetic facts of of food, uh, which is like the food components and biochemistry effects of food on the epigenome. Is that is that correct? Have I said that right? Yeah. Yeah, you did say that correctly. Um, I will go into that um, very soon. First of all, thanks a lot for the compliment. I really appreciate that, um, that you point out the graphics and little twist that I put in. I think it's easy, easier that way to consume and I put a lot of work into that. So it's great <laughs> to hear that, that it actually, um, that actually people are reading that stuff. So that's great. And yeah, I'm a nutritional scientist. Um, my biggest area of expertise is the epigenetic effect of food. Mm -hmm. So we have an, uh, a part of the genome that is coding for proteins, like the active genome. And then there is the epigenome, which uh, affects the genome in a way to activate or shut down a specific gene. Mm -hmm. So um, we can't really affect the genome directly, but we can affect which one is active um, or not. And this is the part that I'm specialized in. So I did a, the most of my research I did on those stuff because it's um, a fairly new, um, yeah, new thing in research and new area. And I specialized in that and did a lot of research on that. So that's uh, my my background primarily. And where are you from? I I, I hint a, a German accent. If I or is it Austrian? I'm not too sure. Like where are you it's, from? It's a, it's a German accent. I'm living in Austria, but I'm originally from Germany, yeah. Okay, and where, where did you study? Um, I did study in the US uh, for stages. I went there with a scholarship and started there, which, um, and uh, then I degreed in uh, Vienna, University of Vienna. Okay, nice, <laughs> nice. So it, this, this whole epigenetics thing is, is very fascinating to me. Um, I probably started to learn a little bit more about it, maybe only about three or four years ago, in how uh, just, I guess, lifestyle factors affects our genetics. You know, it's like, it's not okay. Genetics is uh, the, the be all end all of life. It's, it's what you do with it kind of thing. Um, but what's really interesting is the whole expression of like food itself and how it works uh, with our bodies. Um, what, what made you get into that? What, you know, what, what drove you in that direction? Why this? Well, I think that I never understood why food has such an essential effect on our well-being, or I wanted to dig deeper in that sense, why it has such a huge effect because it's not about just calories in and calories out that just can't be the effect is just too vast on hormonal levels on yeah on the on the effect on neurotransmitters etc so i wanted to dig deeper into that that of course is later in my story to have that specific interest in the epigenome but um yeah my it's just i wanted to I wanted a deeper understanding of how food components exactly affect our bodies and the epigenome is pretty much the link also to yeah, the, the expression, for example, of certain diseases like Alzheimer's or cancer. And um, it offers a huge preventative opportunity for the future if we start to understand that subject a little more. 
So um, yeah, I'm really interested in that subject. Unfortunately, it's not easy to cover those subjects on the Instagram page because to get deeper into the epigenome, <clears throat> you have to have to have like a really vast understanding already on biochemistry and what is a histone modification and stuff like that. So it's not easy to consume, but I'm definitely um, already trying to find ways to express myself in a way that other people can follow me there. Um, because I think it's really um, a subject that needs mainstream attention because it's not about it's not about calories in, calories out. The foods or your food choices have um, yeah, effects on, on much deeper levels as well. And with, that's why I'm, uh, I'm trying to cover these subjects to, and express myself for a bigger audience. It's, yeah, again, you're doing a fantastic job. I love what you do. Um, I've always said that food is not just calories, it's information. It provides information for the body. How, how else would you describe food and its synergistic relationship um, with a human, let's say? Well, I mean, we depend on, we, we are pretty much the food that we are eating. It's like, like a very flat, <laughs> very flat saying, if so to say, but in the end, it's true. I mean, our um, human structures, everything that we consist of, like muscle, bone tissue, those are energy-dense tissues, and we have to consume them from the outside to keep them alive, if so to say. So with our food choices, we pretty much decide what, what our body consists of and how we develop as a human on all levels. And um, I think if more people would understand that deep connection between <laughs> your environmental choices and what you put into your body and whatnot, um, they would be much more conscious with yeah, their consumer decisions as a whole. And um, yeah, probably go into the philosophy a bit deeper, try to go for biochemistry understanding in that sense, because I think it's just unconsciousness maybe putting it aside that this is not that essential and rely on medical interventions instead to just stay alive in some way but that's not how it works you know mm -hmm. and yeah that's pretty much the, the the close connection between food and our being um, is so essential that i can just um yeah recommend to everyone to dig deeper into those subjects. And I, of course, try to make it consumable as easy as possible for that exact purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, growing up, I, my, my dad didn't really know so much about food. Um, I think some of the older generation, definitely not. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a case of just making sure you've had dinner. Like if you, if you had like making sure you have breakfast, lunch and dinner and that was it. Okay. Have you eaten? All right. That is it. It's not like, what have you eaten? As long as you don't have too much sweets. Um, that was probably it. And uh, another thing, which was part of the equation, which was, as you kind of briefly touched on is like medication. We had a medicine cabinet, which yeah. was just, it was paramount. It was, you know, it was just a standard thing where it's like, okay, what's in the what's in the medicine cabinet? Oh, we've run low on this. We need to top that up, like as if it was nutrition. You know, it's, it's certain things. It, it had to be there because of 
certain seasons in the year. Yeah. We're due to get a cold very soon. So let's make sure we've got a bit of that. And, you know, we get a little bit of, uh, I don't know, uh, gut dysbiosis or something. Mm -hmm. So let's get some Pepto-Bismol or, I don't know, Gaviscon. I'm not too sure what you guys have there. But mm -hmm. just some, some sort of um, gut uh, anti-inflammatory thingy. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that, that entire subject, of course, sets already a, a wrong frame because in a healthy state, if so to say, if you don't have too many artificial influences and just go pretty much what nature offers you, you can rely on your natural body signals and you will keep your, and you will achieve your natural body weight that way. You will feel great. And it's just, yeah, the environment that sets that. And if you put yourself into an environment of processed foods, which you get in the supermarket, um, not working for your food in the sense that you're doing, that you're working out or anything like that. And then if something um, negative occurs like a disease, then you try to cover the symptoms with your large <laughs> medical cabinet. That's just not how, how you do it. It's, it's a wrong frame already. It's like the short-term solution for something where no short-term solution is. You have like to build up yeah, a serotonin-based long-term frame of success with, with, uh, with the nutrition and lifestyle behavior. And um, you have to be conscious for that primarily. That's the first thing. Yeah, yeah. I think we've really, as, as a, I don't know, human race, we've really bought into this, this narrative that you need medication so you'd mentioned about how food um i don't know what the words you use like expresses our certain um genomes or something is, is that what you said certain foods uh bring certain expressions in our genomes depend, depending what we eat is did exactly. I say they active they activate and inactivate certain gene strengths so for example you can you can say um, you have already the onset for a disease in your genome, but whether it's active or not depends on your lifestyle and dietary choice. So even if somebody someone says he has an autoimmune disease or somewhat, something that comes out of nowhere, like type one diabetes or cancer or whatever that anything in that behalf, um, it needs an, uh, a trigger in your lifestyle behavior. It's just not coming from nowhere. That's, that's not my understanding of how um, yeah, the body works. You need an artificial or exogenous trigger um, to express that. And that's the exact subject of the epigenome, which, I, which is pretty much what brought me to the thought that everything that you have um, is, is human-induced. Human it may be that some, some older generations uh, builds the onset and then you are the one that pulls the trigger and puts you into adversity yourself, basically. So it's about taking responsibility, uh, responsibility as well. Yeah, yeah, we need to. Um, so give, give me an example. So um, you got a person who eats whole foods you got on someone else, you've touched on it, eats processed foods. What would be the difference in the, uh, the epigenome expression of both people? What would, what would a person expect to get as, as an outcome um, just based on those two things, forgetting 
any anything else any other lifestyle factors well i won't go into the biochemistry details because i think mm -hmm. then we're going to lose a couple of people here but okay. uh, for example if um Yeah, if your diet is not on point, you induce nutrient deficiencies with processed foods, you induce a chronic inflammation with omega-6 dominance chronically in your diet, then you are going to induce certain effects on your genome, whether you believe it or not. Um, and it's not a direct impact, it's an impact about um, through the epigenome by activating and deactivating certain genes. So if you have like the onset for a cancer development already, you can activate that gene, for example, by chronic inflammation, and then the disease is going to have its initiation and will progress. So um, that's pretty much the link. So um, it's your dietary choices have a direct link to the, to the activation of certain gene groups. That's, that's pretty much the, the, the thing. Right, right. You'd mentioned about... Um... Uh, high omega-6 could you explain what the issue is with omega-6 don't we need that in our diet sure to a certain degree we do we need inflammatory progresses or processes better to say uh, to some degree because it of course also is a vital part of the immune system and um, also like pain responses depend on omega-6 pain is not always bad it shows you that there's something going on and that you have to do something about it but it's about the right balance so omega-3 um, and omega-6 need to be consumed in, in the right dosage, in the right ratio, in order to have your inflammatory and anti-inflammatory processes in range. And the problem with the modern uh, nutrition that we have now is that it is super omega-6 dominant. And with that omega-6 dominant, a lot of people are in a chronic inflammation status. And that, of course, uh, contributes to yeah, not only epigenetic changes, as we mentioned already, but it's also contributing to hormonal imbalances, especially when we talk about estrogen dominance, for example, which, of course, which is a huge subject in women and men, by the way. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, you need to, to balance that out. The... The primary effect is on the so-called arachidonic cyclus, arachidonic acid cyclus, where those, uh, those omega fatty acids are metabolized. And if that cyclus is omega-6 dominance, you're running in a whole lot of issues. Right, right. And is everybody typically omega-6 dominant? Like, is it Is it only from processed food or is it other types of foods that is pretty rich in it as well? What's, what's going on there? Why is it so high now? Yeah, also because of the unnatural accessibility to certain foods. It's not only about um, the processed foods, which of course contribute to that vastly, um, but the unnatural accessibility to things like seeds and nuts, if you can overconsume them consistently, especially, for example, walnuts, which are very high in omega-6, for example. So even if you're on a, yeah, a balanced plant-based diet, if so to say. A lot of people do that nowadays. It's very modern to say, okay, I'm plant-based. I'm, I'm conscious diet. of the environment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But even those, you know, it's not natural for humans to consume seeds and nuts in that amount. You know, in nature, if, you would, if we would still live in nature, we would have to compete with other animals for those foods. And you would find like one nut once in a while and not a bag of 200 grams like you buy it in the supermarket. And if you have like 
one bag of those uh, every day, which is not a rare scenario from what I see in my nutrition coachings, then um, also with natural foods, you have the ability to uh, <laughs> to, to uh, promote a severe omega-6 dominance. That's no problem. But of course, the main issue is the processed foods that you're consuming, which leads to omega-6 dominance. And of course, omega-6 dominance means pretty much it's about the ratio. So it's not only about the net amount of omega-6 that you consume, but also about the omega-3 as a counterpart. So um, if you raise the intake of omega-3, you can cover out or you can cover uh, a lot of the negative effects of the omega-6 dominance. But um, yeah, that's, that's a debatable uh, subject as well with the omega-3. What is a good source of it and what's not? I mean, those capsules that you consume, there's not a lot of uh, vitamin E in it most of the time. Those are mostly oxidized, not a high quality. So where do you get your healthy marine omega-3 fats from? Uh, high, high quality fish products are very expensive. So the accessibility for vast amounts of the population will not be there. Um, so really it's a tough subject. It's not, okay. even e it's not even easy to give a simple recommendation here what exactly to do about it. Um, the easiest thing is to yeah, think about your omega-6 consumption as a whole and Going with whole natural foods, of course, is always the better choice. But then probably try to think about ways to also from natural sources to moderate your omega-6 intake a bit. I think that's the best tip to give there. Right, right. I'm just thinking because I, I do love to eat nuts every every single day. Mm -hmm. and I probably, you know, because I, I might be on a, uh, uh, like a kind of cyclical keto. So during the keto times, I'll be snapping like, I'll... I wouldn't necessarily snack, but I'll have like a bunch of nuts with my food and ton of seeds, like, I don't know, chaya seeds, lin seeds, and you mentioned walnuts, maybe some of those and some, uh, um, some almonds and some just like loads of different nuts. So yeah. I, it's like about trying to get that fat in, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> I, if I wanted to raise my omega threes, I don't. I don't want to think. Okay, that's it. Inflammatory. I'm just going to have to die inflamed. Like, mm. how do I put the flame out? Like, what's you know, what's what's the threes I'm going to add in there? I do have some some fish oils, which is pretty good. Um, it's by Keon. Don't know if you know Keon. I don't know it now. You know, check them out if you get a moment. I could give you a discount code. <laughs> <laughs> the EPA and DHA is 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 relatively high on that. So the EPA and DHA is is uh, in in congruency with the uh, the milligram amount. Uh, well, yeah, very close to. Mm -hmm. So um, other than that, I'm just wondering for the average person, like. I just, I, I want to say, okay, what, what can we do? All right, everybody's inflamed. Okay, do something about it. Just eat less omega-6. If, you know, it's hard mm. to. Like, how do we raise the three up? That's, that's why we need yeah. some kind of answer, right? Yeah, um, very good question. Of course, the supplementation of omega-3 is an option. But um, what I mentioned before, it's about the quality of that supplement, especially. Yeah. Um, because there's a, I have to be honest here, there's a lot of rubbish on the market in that sense. Um, it's just not the same to consume a capsule of, of EPA and DHA, so icosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, and uh, 
consuming um, yeah, a marine or natural raised piece of salmon. It's just not the same thing. Um, but if you if you like need the omega-3 supplement because otherwise you don't have the accessibility and you can't cover your needs by natural whole foods, which, which is hard to do, I, I have to admit that, then you should go with the best possible quality of the omega-3 supplement as possible. And um, there are a couple of factors that, that contribute to that. So first, you want to eliminate the potential oxidation um, enhancers, if so to say, for, of the omega-3 supplement. So you want it probably in a dark bottle or at least away from sunlight as good as possible. You want to ensure that there is sufficient vitamin E in that supplement along with the EPA and EHA as an antioxidant. So that will raise the antioxidative capacity in that supplement and it won't oxidize that easily. And you want to keep it away off obviously from oxygen itself. So you want it in probably something like a dark cover or something, but not taking out too many pieces at one time because it's very oxygen and light sensitive. So you don't want to do that as well. And with the oxidation of those EPA and DHA, it pretty much becomes useless, if not contraindicated. So with potential, more pot potential negative effects, if you think about it, than positive effects. So it's really a complicated subject. Mm. But of course, um, omega-3 supplementation is is the most convenient way to raise the omega-3 intake it is but um yeah i'd really try to focus on what exactly you're supplementing and where where it's coming from and what the quality is yeah yeah um a few questions rose to my mind there um so you mentioned vitamin e like how like how much milligrams of vitamin e per i don't know thousand milligrams milligram capsule um of um omega-3s would you say is good well that's it's hard to give a recommendation directly because an epa and dha supplement is rarely just epa and dha there are other fatty acids in there as well right and it depends on what that is also, um, how high is the oxidative capacity or the oxidative potential of those fatty acids? Um, is there like something like lecithin or did they use some other um, other source to make, it, uh, me, to make it easier to swallow and stuff like that? It's hard, it's hard. I want, I want to find my bottle. Give me one second, give me, give me <laughs> one second. Wait there. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys, just went away for a, a millisecond there. Right, so um, in there, I don't see no vitamin E in there. But it says purified cold water, 1,210 milligrams. Um, total omega-3s, 1,000 milligrams. EPA, 530 milligrams. DHA 435 milligrams and other omega-3s 35 milligrams. Um, 
other ingredients bovine gelatin purified water um glycerin glycerin yeah, glycerine. <laughs> uh, um, organic is that is that shit? Uh, organic <laughs> rosemary leaf extract, standardized with organic sunflower seed oil. Ax, uh, ax, I don't know how to pronounce that word. Axanthin, axanthin, and astaxanthin. <laughs> is that is that right? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> uh, and that's it. Uh, that's, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the sunflower oil component. I have to tell you that. Um, it's better solved in something else like olive oil or coconut oil, something like that, if that's, if that's possible. Yeah. But it's, it's an interesting question. I have to think about that um, for myself a bit, what exactly I'd recommend how an ideal omega-3 omega um, supplement would look like. That's actually a great question, how I would do that. It's... Uh, I probably should uh, do a post about that at some point or something. I really have to clear my mind and and uh, and think about that. <laughs> Tag me on that as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, I definitely would love to see that. Um, so talking of posts, you had mentioned that the type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle and diet-induced disease. Uh, yeah. I find a, a lot of the time things are diet and lifestyle. Uh, so what do you think, why do you think people are not really fully understanding that it's not something that just, you know, you're just unlucky with, oh gosh, I've got diabetes. Is it, all right, so what I want to ask is if you've got diabetes that runs a lot in the family, mm -hmm. Could you still avoid that through the right diet or would you have to be like really, really, really stringent or would you be so, would, would you be so, so at risk of getting it yourself? Like what would be more kind of, would it be more uh, epigenome expression um, factors um, or is it, Oh, I can't remember what I was going to compare it to. But yeah, is it is it more to do with uh, your lifestyle or is it a combination of your genetics as well? Or is it like, does genetics have a higher factor to play in there? Not with type 2 diabetes, not from my perspective. Type 2 diabetes is not heritable and it primarily depends on your individual lifestyle. What is an essential factor is in what environment you live. So if you have parents, for example, which are obese don't, and have a severely impacted pleasure center. So they always go for fast food and, and sugary foods to cover their needs immediately and don't have any control about themselves, then you're very likely to be influenced by that sort of behavior. Don't think about it and just implement copy paste what your parents do. And it's more of, yeah, how do you say, a psychological onset of the severe behaviors, but it's not primed in your epigenome or in your genome. Um, potentially difference is type one diabetes, of course, because that um, develops uh, typically in young age and there's not a lot of room to trigger that yourself. So there might be a much bigger uh, genetic component to that sort of disease. 
I still uh, do a lot of research uh, in that behalf also on potential triggers in the lifestyle behavior of previous generations. So I think that the onset for type 1 diabetes might be induced by um, earlier generations because it is obvious that type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes race simultaneously in their numbers and started growing exponentially also at the same time. So it's very likely that they have the same root cause. And um, so it's, yeah, it's hard to tell because there's not much evidence on that, on that claim. But from my perspective, it's very likely that this is the case. And we, of course, need to evaluate this further. But with type 2 diabetes, um, I mean, an insulin resistance is, uh, is only dependent on, on your li lifestyle and dietary choices. So that's uh, some, some develop it earlier, some later, but it depends on... Yeah, your insulin peaks, your glucose peaks in your bloodstream, and also on things like seed oils, which we already mentioned with the omega-6 dominance, which also is a, uh, an essential factor in um, type 2 diabetes. And that goes hand in hand with other symptoms of metabolic syndrome. So also hypertension, for example, is 100% uh, lifestyle induced in that sense, because um, and, and a misconception often is that people think that it's because of the salt that you're consuming. Salt, or better to say sodium, is an essential nutrient. What causes the hypertension is the increased sodium retention as a direct response to insulin resistance. Um, so it's lifestyle induced and the root cause for the hypertension in most cases is overconsumption of processed carbohydrates, so sugar. Um, that's also an often misunderstood conception there. Um, so Primarily, it's again, take it, it's about taking responsibility. You are in charge of your health and you should act that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, uh, especially the salt thing. And it's uh, even, even people who are consider themselves fitness professionals, they really try to minimize the amount of salt which they have in their mm -hmm. diet as opposed to. Um, maybe checking the quality of salt that they're using and not be too, too concerned about it. I don't know where I've read it, but um, so somewhere it could have been maybe one of your posts or maybe I, I, I read it in a book that uh, our ancestors used to have something like 15 milligrams of salt a day or something like that. Is it milligrams, 15 milligrams? No, what? no, it's grams. It's, it's, pro it's probably grams. grams. Grams, my bad. Sorry, I don't know. Grams. And, um, and, and the recommended amount now is something like three, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know exactly what the general recommendation here is from the, uh, yeah, from the big organizations like the DGE, so the German Association for all those kind of things. Um, but yeah, it's a misconception. We also have that concept of a DASH diet, so managing your hypertension with uh, the... the decreasing of your sodium intake and that from my perspective is just wrong it's not evidential and it doesn't work <laughs> it's <laughs> and uh, it, it never has has been working so the, the numbers of or the success rates of a dash diet is, is horrible of course you can decrease your sodium um, retention by decreasing the sodium intake in the short term but in the long run you'll promote other deficiencies by that first of all second the sodium is an essential nutrient and you're not treating the root cause the root cause is the 
overconsumption or the bad lifestyle behavior as a whole. Um, and primarily the sugar as mentioned. So you should rather focus on that instead of cutting out an essential nutrient and hope for the best. That's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> so um, people who are uh, um, I don't know, I don't know, metabolic syndrome, but like people who have, uh, who are um, not insulin, like who are insulin uh, resistant, would it be important for them to slightly reduce their sodium at all? Because it, their body's ability to uh, excrete sodium might be impaired. So that might increase their blood pressure. Is, is that not right? In the short term, that argumentation at least makes some sort of sense. But I'd say it's rather about trying to rebuild the insulin sensitivity as fast as possible. And if the hypertension is severely high, so really problematic that you're in an acute danger of a heart attack or a stroke or anything in that behalf, then it's probably the better option to have a medical intervention there and just get the, get the hypertension or the blood pressure a little lower for... And, and I mean, it's short-term medical intervention. So that should be a solution for a couple of weeks. And the primary uh, goal should be to rebuild the insulin sensitivity so that you don't have to cut out on sodium that much. So that would be my, my suggestion there. Of course, um, if the, the hypertension can be that bad that you have to do something acutely, that's what we have medical interventions for. Medicine me never... <laughs> from my perspective, makes a lot of sense as a mainstream intervention if there's not an acute state. So um, prescribing beta blockers like pills <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, it's not Smarties, it's, it's a drug and you don't want to take them for a longer time than you, than you actually need them. So it's primarily about getting your lifestyle, lifestyle and diet manners under control. And if needed, if it's really bad, also, for example, with, with uh, massive overweight weight or something, when somebody's in acute danger of just falling apart completely in the short term, then it's not about cutting out like an essential nutrient also, then we need a medical intervention to just ensure the person survives in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I want to move on slightly uh, on to a, a very interesting post which you put out uh, some time ago. Where, what did you say? You mentioned <clears throat> farmers, farmers <laughs> use cereal to fatten up their cattle. Humans believe eating the same cereal will cause them to lose weight. I mean, that's just amazing. The irony. <laughs> <laughs> how did we come to this like it's just hilarious i just thought i, I just wanted to open up that subject yeah i mean that analogy is of course a bit, a bit harsh because it's hard to compare the physiology anatomy and biochemistry of a cow directly to the metabolism of a human but it just was or the idea was of course to first provoke a bit or induce new thoughts at least and question a bit what exactly you're doing with your diet. I mean, the increasement of or severe or the epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes exactly started with the uh, 
industrial processing of carbohydrates and with the processing of the grains. And I just wanted to make sure that people don't forget or at least notice that fact before basing their diet on grains and carbohydrates, because that, that's simply not natural for humans. And if somebody tells you something else, then they pretty much don't know what they're talking about. The absolute majority of humans' evolution, we didn't live on carbohydrates primarily, especially during wintertime. I mean, how are you going to live off carbohydrates during a winter period? It's not possible. So... Um, what you do is primarily consume yeah, animals, fats, and, and protein. And that's also why <laughs> the essential macronutrients that we have are fats and protein. You can live without carbohydrates. I don't say that this is the ideal uh, way of uh, designing a diet for everyone. Um, carbohydrates have their place, especially when we work out a lot or also especially for the sleep rhythm, etc. It's not about cutting out carbohydrates entirely and that's the solution for everything. But the belief that carbohydrates all of a sudden are the primary element of human diet just because we have the ability to of agriculture and processing those and make them... Uh, get them into larger shelf life and we can live off them. It's just not the case. It's not healthy. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? How it did become a part of agriculture the moment, the moment we were able to um, start farming, you know? We were the hunter-gatherers and then we started farming and I think that was the moment we also started to uh, gain deficiencies around that time. This is like even thousands of years ago, isn't it? Yeah, sure. I mean, like grains per se are not the, are not the problem. You know, if we live in nature and it's summertime, we will find some grains at some point and we can also perfectly, it's perfectly fine to consume them. What is the problem with the grains is first the processing and second, the unnatural accessibility to such huge amounts. Um, you don't eat a whole bag of oatmeal as a human or under, under normal circumstances. It's, it's just not the case. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you say processing, and uh, and if we look at it, there's there's much uh, grains which is in so many things now, which has been sprayed with glyphosate. There's so mm -hmm. much, there's so much traces of glyphosate, and I, we haven't got the the testing materials at home to check to see where it's in, but it's pretty much in quite a lot of things, including seasonings. If you're not careful. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it would be found quite a lot in, in that, in, yeah, grains, as you put it. But um, now it's a part of breakfast. Um, it's, it's crazy, right? And from what I remember, there was a, a, a Dr. Kellogg's, Dr. Kellogg's, yeah. who, uh, it was quite interesting because he, he said that uh, we should eat, I don't know, we, we should, I can't remember, we should, we, we should eat this, these, uh, I don't know, carbohydrates for breakfast. I think, I think the goal was to reduce the amount of greasy food that Americans were eating. So I don't know, I don't know, some, something along those lines. And then he was saying, yeah, it's, it's all about, uh, I'm sure he said it was about flakes or grains or something, came out with cornflakes. 
mm-hmm. uh, a doctor coming out with a cereal that's quite kind of different um and yeah, you, in that sense you often have to bit to think about that's what i recommend also a lot of my page i mean it's about not about the research per se, especially not contributing to a single person. It's about finding potential conflicts of interest first and then analyze uh, a subject from different perspectives. And if somebody like <clears throat> Dr. Kellogg has the vast accessibility to corn products already, then it's very likely, I don't want to call out somebody here or anything, but it's very likely that he's trying to find a way to uh, sell his product. One of my goals is to sleep like a baby and feel like a champion during the day. One of the hacks that I have to do this is red light therapy. Now, red light therapy is amazing. It helps with muscle size, strength, endurance, speed, cognitive ability, soreness, reduce fatigue, muscle recovery, increased range of motion in the joints, knee pain, rheumatoid arthritis, increased melatonin, boost production of endogenous anti-inflammatories, increase energy, boost collagen. And that's not even the end of it. I use the Advantage 1500 by Red Light Rising and I feel like a superhero on a mission during the day and a bear on hibernation <laughs> in the evening. If you're looking to boost your overall health, then get yourself a red light therapy panel by visiting www.redlightrising.co.uk and use code SNIPES5 for 5% off. Now we've heard about sustainably sourced food, but what about clothes? This is something which I've been spending years looking into and I've managed to find something which I am happy to finally share. I've launched a range of clothes that are also sustainably sourced from 100% certified organic cotton. This is a glyphosate free, no fertilizer, no GMO grown cotton. This means no toxic chemicals on our skin and farmers are not in contact with any toxicity potentially harming their health or the environment. Organic cotton uses less water to grow too. The range of clothes will include t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies, and long sleeves with more items to come for both men, women, and children. This is my company called UHP Clothing, which stands for Unlocking Human Potential. Most of the tops have some sort of motivational message on there, which fits perfectly with my brand ethos of fulfilling your potential and striving for greatness. If you're looking for something different, which is environmentally friendly, motivational, and cool, then check out uhpclothing.com. And that's often where research all of a sudden becomes a marketing tool because the thing with statistics and research is they are not only easy to manipulate they're also working for you if you find the right parameters so in the end it's easy to prove pretty much everything anything i can do that no problem um if you have sufficient time and uh, sufficient uh financial firepower to do the research and um do these things so 
it's not a bad thing that these people work for an interest. It's just about that you have to think about the potential conflict of interest first and then get your information from different resources to build your own truth based on that and not the other way around. If you just rely on that single resource, then we should probably only consume Kellogg's and Coca-Cola all day. And I don't think that's the best option. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. I, as I was talking, a question came in my head, but hopefully it might come back to me at a later time. But that, that's, that's funny. Yeah, you do need to check all sources. You have to be, you know, open-minded, question, just question things. Like, is there a, you know, a, 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 just like hidden agendas uh, behind certain things? And talking of that, um, we have a nation now that are, in, in desperate hope and believe that as long as they have a vaccination, they will remain COVID free and safe. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, well, how do I steer this? Um, you have to be careful now. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But, all right, so you know we're, we're trying to all be robust as a human being and to be you know anti-fragile and and uh, and fit in in the foods that we eat and 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 stuff like that. And um, would you say that? Um, I mean, it's it's an open subject, you know, like it's like for instance the flu comes every single year apart from when covid arrived is it okay i'm out but it's 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 a big question of can someone who really takes care of themselves uh, avoid themselves from being critically ill uh from covid or is it is it a case of What's your what's your viewpoint really, or is it a case of it doesn't matter? Matter, you can you know you can eat good foods, have a, a good, clean, healthy lifestyle, train and uh, be metabolically flexible and all that great stuff. Have all your nutrients, do uh, mindfulness practices, um, but COVID can still kill you. Like what's 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 your thoughts there? Do you feel as though it's 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 very necessary that each person would need to have a vaccination, even if they have good practices and maybe young and never get sick. Uh, what's your thoughts? Well, first of all, I think that should be an individual decision. So if somebody believes that he needs the vaccine or not, he should do the research on his, on his or her own and have the opportunity to, to decide whether he wants to take it or not. That's the first thing. I mean, I'm first of all about individual choice. A fact is that with severe lifestyle behavior and bad nutrition, you raise the, uh, the potential of a negative outcome of all infection diseases without any exceptions. So having that under control, of course, is a part of your responsibility if you don't want to get sick. That doesn't mean that you can't die of uh, a potential dangerous infectional disease, not only about COVID, but pretty much about anything. If, uh, if you are severely immune 
suppressed, it's easy to die of a, of a flu or um, a lung infection from any sort of uh, bacteria or viral infection. So you have to yeah, take responsibility, but you're not going to protect yourself entirely from the potential negative outcome of an infection. By the way, whether you take a vaccine or not, doesn't change that fact. You can still die <laughs> from an infection disease. Um, and yeah, what was, what was I about to say? Yeah, that's pretty much my first thoughts on the question, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, if somebody has a, 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 a metabolic dysfunction, would you say that the vaccination will hold no relevance to uh, any protection for that individual? Well, I think the concept of vaccination in, that's, in that particular manner makes sense. I mean, if you have an immune suppressed person and is just severely ill already or is just out of shape completely and now immediately needs some protection, I still think there are things that you need to do first, try to break that frame, try to improve your nutrition behavior, try to improve yourself and take responsibility for your situation to just make the most of yourself. But the concept of vaccination um, makes sense in, in that behalf. I am, we can now discuss about <laughs> the potential benefits and negative impacts of that, but I think that's, that's a tough, tough one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, you can still you can still become very sick if you have a vaccination or not. That's a fact. End of. <laughs> so I'm thinking, not people don't like to put it in the same category, but like I'm thinking, I know that when my immune system is good, uh, I don't even need to think about whether I'm going to get the flu. I, I just know I'm going to be fine. I know that if I'm working uh, excessively and I'm a bit stressed, my immune system is run down, then um, there's a higher chance I could get the flu. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm thinking to myself, if, if my body is run down, then having a vaccination, is that going to boost my immune system to make me better from stopping no. it? No, I'm saying that, yeah, as you mentioned, like the, the, the underlying issue is kind of, is still there. So yeah, I do. Let me say, let me say one thing there. Um, I don't know what the point is, but, or where that comes from, but the scientific arrogance that scientists and research as a whole believes that they could outsmart something as big as nature is really driving me crazy. We don't even understand immune structures entirely. We know antigen and antibody, and we know a couple of humoral structures in the immune system, but we have no clue what precisely is going on. And by the idea of a vaccination, you assume that you could trick nature in the, in the short term, first with no real evidence of what is happening in the future. And second, I mean, you can, I try to think about an, an analogy here. Um, for example, if you have like fire in Australia, like woods that accumulate in the, in the forest, you can of course extinguish every single fire that comes up 
um, in the short term, just to make sure nobody is going to harm. But what is going to happen is that underwood is going to accumulate even further, and then there's going to come one fire that you can't extinguish. And that's, I think, a pretty good analogy if we assume that vaccinations will work. There is no way you're going to outsmart nature as a whole. No way. So I think in the short term, if there was really a severe situation, the idea as a concept as a whole, whether you like the intervention or not, it can make sense if you do it correctly, which I assume they are doing not right now. I have to be that honest. But the concept of vaccination has its benefits, no doubt about that. Um, but the way they do it or the way they perform it right now, I really don't see much of a positive side there. Mm -hmm. I, I am questioning that, especially there's there's so many different um, so many different types of people, and it, it seems to be. Uh, a, a strong push to just get people to go through and have a vaccination without much question of, okay, tell me more about yourself, your, your health and, and everything. It's just, um, I received a letter, came to my house that said, uh, uh, yeah, you're, yeah, you're next in line, you know, um, mm -hmm. come, come and get your vaccination. There wasn't a questionnaire of asking anything um, about my health, uh, which I found pretty weird. It's a, it's definitely a different approach to what I'm used to. Um, have you found it to be slightly different? With <laughs> yeah, I have, <laughs> I have. That's a very good and interesting point that you mentioned there already. I mean, one of the first things. I mean, I've, I'm not a doctor, not a physician. But what I can tell you from a couple of semesters in that area as well is that one of the first things that you learn is that you don't vaccinate into a prevalent infection. So the first thing that you have to check before you vaccinate someone is to evaluate if he already has the disease or if they're already like the virus or the bacteria is already or whatever is already prevalent and they're not doing that. So that's already conflicting among a couple of other things, obviously, but I mean, already that fact is showing you, I mean, when we talk about uh, improving health and healthcare, health prevention, and the basics of medical theory that we've worked with for hundreds of years, for good reason, and they are also questioning physical integrity, which is a human right, which is in our constitutions for a reason as well. If th that co combination makes me suspicious, I have to say that I can't, I can't <laughs> go around that. It makes me suspicious. What is real? What What is the purpose here? Yeah, I, I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, um, thanks for your input on that. I, I just really wanted to, you know, get uh, someone who's got uh, some kind of. Uh, um, you know, scientific knowledge and, and your thoughts on, you know, health and, and vaccination, you know, whether they work in congruency with each other, or mm. whether the, a vaccination can uh, cover all aspects, you know, because who's talking about, you know, you can't, you can't have pharmaceuticals to try and patch up an issue, you know, and vaccination is kind of like a pharmaceutical in a way um, to, to try and patch up a problem. Um, anyway, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, 
I, for many years, when going to a restaurant and I would get like a, a steak, mm -hmm. I, I always wanted it like almost cremated. If I saw blood there, I'd be like, oh my God, like, that's not even cooked. I remember one time uh, like I sliced into uh, a steak, might have been a fillet steak, and I just saw blood on the plate. And I was like, sorry, could you cook this more, please? And, and then they cooked it and I saw clear juices and I was happy about that. And, you know, for many years, that's, that's the way I enjoyed it. And I saw your post where it said meat doneness meat doneness affects the quality yeah um so i've now upgraded to a a, a medium rare mm -hmm. took some time to to convert probably about a, a few years um could you explain why the 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 doneness affects the quality what it what what, what does it do exactly in terms of maybe the, the nutrients in, in what you are inducing or digesting, depending on how it's cooked? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to take away your fear of blood in your steak a bit, because right, right. Um, the steak or the cow doesn't contain any blood anymore once it's butchered. What you see on your plate is an amino acid called uh, hemoglobin. Not hemoglobin, it's myoglobin. Hemoglobin is the red, uh, the red color in the red blood cells and myoglobin is a muscle protein which is a very similar structure. So it appears red on your, on your table, but that's not blood. Not blood, oh my God, this is, <laughs> wow. I can't wait to share this, all right, cool. So it's, uh, it's myoglobin, uh, similar structure. Yeah, if you overcook a meat, the bioavailability of the, of the nutrients is just not that high. I mean, by, just by, to make it the, the most obvious, when you cook, overcook or if you yeah, heavily cook a piece of meat, you're reducing the water content of the meat. So the, the, the density of micronutrients increases, but the bioavailability of those nutrients decreases. And that applies to pretty much everything that is in that steak or whatever piece of meat we are talking about. So it's about the right balance. I mean, um, if you just prefer a cooked meat, a piece of uh, meat, it's perfectly fine unless you burn it, of course. But um, yeah, you, you diminish the bioavailability and um, that's not what you want to do. Typically, you are eating the, eating the steak because you crave for micronutrients and you're just taking away that, that, that benefit to a certain degree if you overcook it. Okay, so the, the bioavailability, is, is, is that just the micronutrients or the, the protein remains intact, I assume, but it's... It, it, it stays in contact uh, in, in yeah not in contact intact <laughs> um, so the body is very efficient with macronutrients so there's rarely going something to waste um, so if you consume fat carbohydrates protein or alcohol you're going to metabolize that in some way typically other or uh, unless you're in a you're massively massively over consuming it or in some sort of uh, yeah, unnatural, unhealthy state. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to, going to metabolize that somehow because the body is not, is not going to waste energy just like that. With the micronutrients, it's a bit different because you only have a short time span through the colon and uh, through the 
through the intestine as a whole. So um, you have just one chance to uh, to really uptake for the real uh, micronutrient uptake. And if it's that dense, it's going to diminish the uptake. So if I hope that analogy makes it easy to understand, I have to like try to not go into too much into detail here, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's pretty much how it works in easy words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what would you suggest is the best way to cook it? Like, it's, it's interesting because with a, let's say a chicken, you can't have any of the uh, hemoglobin floating out or blood, whatever it might be. It has to be cooked properly, isn't it? You can't have, you can't have a, a pink looking Chicken. Yeah, the chicken is not the chicken doesn't contain myoglobin. It's not it's not red for that reason. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So it has to be cooked. Whereas, you know, you've got different levels of, of how you can have a, a steak. And some people they go for rare and it looks like it's literally been carved off a cow and straight on the plate. So is the bio bioavailability better the more rare it is? Or does it need to be cooked ever so slightly? It's, 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 it's an in-between, I think, where the ideal sweet spot is. I mean, if you raw, it does work, but it's not very like <laughs> increasing your appetite for most people. That's, of course, uh, an hindering factor. And um, you have the problem with the hygiene, um, which, is, which you can't underestimate. So raw meat products always come or if you can ensure the, that the cooling chain isn't broken, then of course you can eat red, red meat or fish, you can eat it raw, but you can never be too sure. So I'd be a bit cautious with that. But I think the sweet spot would be like something a medium where still sufficient water and the environment of the micronutrients is not too destroyed, if so to say, so that you have like a sweet spot for the consumption. I think that's the best way to go. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So you got a lot of people in this world who have um, high cholesterol, and mm -hmm. uh, in order to deal with it, there's the drug uh, statins, which a lot of people take to uh, lower their cholesterol. People in general believe uh, that cholesterol should be low. The lower, the better. So they reach for something like statins to achieve this. Mm -hmm. Are the potential issues in taking stance? Would you be able to break that down? What's the maybe some of the misinformation uh, people have about cholesterol? And, you know, how could they rectify it? Yeah, I think it's easier if we started to talk about cholesterol in itself rather than statins, because that is the intervention that comes afterwards. So I first like to say that cholesterol is an essential part of everyone's physiology. If you cut out cholesterol entirely and suppress it because we have an endogenous synthesis of cholesterol in our liver, in our liver which is not irrelevant, it's about two grams per day. So we already have a lot of cholesterol um, going on in our body and we need that for multiple reasons. It's a transport carrier, it's the basis for androgens, so sex hormones, um, all steroids like testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, even vitamin D are based on the molecule of cholesterol. So a steron ring, and you need that for multiple reasons. So cholesterol, just like with the sodium, is never the root cause for any 
problem in regarding your regarding your anatomy and physiology unless you're in a uh, in a disease or in a severe state already so cholesterol only becomes a negative component in a state of chronic inflammation for example um, raised LDL cholesterol, so what we, most people consider as the bad cholesterol, can even be a positive sign for an intact immune system because your immune cells uh, fuel on cholesterol. So that can even be a positive thing if, for, yeah, and if you or if you just got an infection and the LDL cholesterol synthesis rises and the 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 levels in your blood serum also rise that is a positive sign of an intact uh, immune system. So the other way around. Um, but if cholesterol levels are too high in um, something like what that we already discussed, like chronic inflammation with uh, severe intake of omega-6, for example, then you run into issues where um, cholesterol molecules might accumulate and cause things like arteriosclerosis. But that is not because of the cholesterol itself. It's about the um, diet and lifestyle behavior that is not intact as a whole and primarily, again, refers to the consumption of processed carbohydrates, which sets the onset among or along with omega-6 overconsumption for chronic inflammation and the basis of arteriosclerosis, which then um, cholesterol also contributes to, but not as a root cause, but as, but as a symptom. So it's... Uh, the other way around. And if you, again, statins make sense at some point, because if you are already having arteriosclerosis or you're in a severe state, it might make sense to suppress the cholesterol short term, because that's what's accumulating and you don't want to increase that um, negative impact, if so to say. But again, to free yourself of that disease, it's about improving your dietary and lifestyle behavior holistically and systematically and not about um, suppressing cholesterol, especially not from your diet. So if you have cholesterol dense foods like eggs, people often tend to believe that this is going to, to raise their cholesterol serum levels. And it's just not, it's, uh, there is no link between elementary cholesterol consumption and the serum levels of cholesterol. So that, that just doesn't make sense. I hope I can break, or one of the purposes what I do with my post is to break that frame about cholesterol because it's such a vital component. Actually, for most people in a healthy state, I try to raise the cholesterol levels in order to ensure sufficient vitamin D synthesis endogenously, et cetera. So it's like the complete other way around and going completely against medical recommendations, if so to say, um, but yeah, that's, that's my viewpoint on cholesterol. And regarding the statin questions, I already mentioned that they have their purpose in short-term interventions. They're not completely useless as with mo all the opportunities that we have to impact our physiology directly. They, there comes the time where we can use that to our benefit, but, but as a mainstream intervention to suppress cholesterol, it's not only not necessary, it's contraindicated. You don't need that and you shouldn't take it. It's, it's, it's pretty wild, though, because uh, there's a lot of medication that has, um, um, I don't know what sort of uh, analogies are used, but it's kind of like a, rather than a, a, a wide net kind of fishing, it's like a, a spear, 
you know it's just um it's not really looking at the bigger picture yeah exactly cholesterol is is it is that good for the brain as well sure it it is it is it is essential for every tissue that we have because it is a vital part of, uh, of, of cell membranes, of, of cell contact, because when we talk about hormones, we talk about intercellular communication as well. Um, just like with neurotransmitters, these little molecules and things and uh, are communicating with, with each other. And if you suppress cholesterol, you take away the, com- the, the opportunity that your body communicates um, in between effectively <laughs> so of course um it of course also plays a huge plays a huge role in the nervous system and a huge role for cognitive health and cognitive abilities right yeah so guys yeah cholesterol is cool <laughs> <laughs> huge fan of cholesterol right here <laughs> thanks for that i appreciate that um Sugar. Let's talk about sugar. Like sugar is uh, abundant in so many things. It's, it's unreal. And I always think to myself that it's, 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 I think it said that it's, it um, has like a similar pleasure pathways in the brain, like cocaine. Um, and it's, it's abundant. You could just walk in a shop. In fact, you can be a child, six years old walk in there and you can buy as much sugar as you want it's it's crazy um what's what's your thoughts on the amount of sugar that is available to us and there's there's no limitation to how much you can get and the dangers involved and yeah i think the accessibility of course is a problem that's for sure um but of course it you know just the accessibility doesn't produce the problem because it's still your decision and your responsibility to to either take it or not so it uh, depends on your cognitive ability your short-term pleasure center and your basically yeah abilities as a human to overcome these things as well so i'm not a big fan to just yeah the mainstream the mainstream media that promotes sugar primarily and uh the accessibility is the problem i mean that's not how how it works i mean as a human or as an individual you have the responsibility but of course the the accessibility of sugar is a huge problem and what you mentioned there uh, with the cocaine of course it doesn't have that much of a short-term effect i mean cocaine is much more addicting you have to say that it's it goes into the same pleasure center but you're going to be much easier addicted to just by one coke session if so to say compared to one sugar session so i like that comparison i like that i like that um analogy because it is an extreme and it uses new thoughts but i think it's not like 100 accurate but still um what people that are sugar addicted in that sense are really addicted to is typically a dopamine response in their brain so they're not craving for the sugar, for the sugar's sake, but for the pleasure that it induces in the brain in the short term. And that is, of course, conflicting with everything else that they're trying to achieve in their lives. Because once you are in that frame of, okay, I'm going to take the short-term pleasure instead of long-term successive behaviors that are primarily contributed to serotonin responses when you like aim for a goal in the long term and then finally achieve that, that's good. what makes you really 
feel good, of course, if you set the right next goal in time to not fall into a hole afterwards. But um, that's how yeah, a healthy brain works and what is really fulfilling. And depression and dopamine um, and sugar addiction and things like co like all, all the other things that have that interfere with that system. Um, that's really what, what causes dangers, not only um, in the short term, but it affects your life as a whole. It starts with the sugar and then you can't just can't even finish easy tasks at your work because you have to eat sugar or find something else that induces the same dopamine response, like sitting in front of the TV and, and, and zapping through, like going on social media way too often. It's an easy way to start negative behaviors. And which is why I think, especially for children, which have a hard time to regulate their behaviors at such a young age. I mean, it's a lot about the right behavior of the parents as well, but in that sense, the, the accessibility can really be contributing to negative things. Um, and I'd love to see some research on sugar consumption and, and educational, um, educational success and cognitive success in young children, I think that will be shocking once that <laughs> once that comes out because it's obvious that this th those kids that are that that don't know restriction or don't know the word no in itself always going for the short term pleasure with, whether it's sugar tv or anything else their cognitive ability is negatively impacted 100% and a lot of that is given in schools is just regular meals and it's it's not as obvious as I don't know, like a, a candy bar. It, it comes in d many different forms in a very sneaky way, such as yeah. uh, cereals, which you know you they say you know fortified with vitamins and minerals. It comes in condiments as well. You know yeah. you have your you know your food, and then you might put some ketchup on top. Now, mm, yeah, this is really nice. It's not the tomato that you're really enjoying in there. Exactly. You know, it comes in so many forms. It's, it's sneaked in so many foods that people, and I guess that's the reason why processed foods are quite addictive as well, right? Exactly, exactly. I was, uh, I was going to say that. I mean, if you think about things like flour, cornflakes, or any other processed carbohydrate, those starchy foods that don't contain any micronutrients anymore because of their state of processing. What we're talking about here is a starch and a starch, I have to point that out very clearly here, is nothing else than a long chain of glucose molecules. And it doesn't need any energy endogeneously of your, of your body to break that down. So essentially you're consuming glucose, sugar, monosaccharides, um, with those processed carbohydrates. And they have potentially the same effect depending on their grade of, um, or their state of processing and what you're consuming them with. But um, things like pizza have the same effect. They're designed for that purpose. They, have, they use things like a bliss point, which is like the ideal texture and everything. They hire researchers and designers food designers for that for that exact purpose to make you addictive to that foods uh, um, so that's something to really think about <laughs> the next time you buy something like that absolutely yeah yeah 
I mean, I have pizza once, probably once every two weeks or maybe once a week. But I'm aware of the, the pleasure I get from it. And I find it fascinating when you're really in tune with your body and you have, you know, these sinful moments and you have it and you know you should be satisfied and you feel the craving afterwards. It's, I find it fascinating. I'm like, wow. The cocaine is really hitting me right now. <laughs> it's you've got no reason to want to eat more. I remember when I used to eat McDonald's food, Franken food. It's not. It doesn't even fall in a category of food. But when I would have it, it I'd be buying so much, and within a couple of hours, I'd be hungry. And I'm like, I don't get it. That was quite a lot which I ate, and it's simply because it's just a ton. Yeah. of sugar um what's ex what's 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 the real problem with sugar exactly like you have people who are let's say athletes who might think do you know what i i'm 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 fit um i've got a six pack there's loads of people it's like yeah i've got a six pack so sugar is fine i can eat a lot of sugar uh, but there's more to it than that. Like, what's going on in the body? It's not just about if you got a six pack, you're okay. I just need to clear that up. No, it's it's definitely not. I mean, with the sugar, we're talking about different levels of its impact. So we have the dopamine response in the brain that we talked about. Then the other vital factor that we with, that we have to talk about is the insulin response to that. We already talked about that a bit. So. It's in, in the long run, if you overconsume processed carbohydrates and raise your insulin levels through, through the top, you're going to induce an insulin resistance and you'll run into issues with uh, that are, or yeah, an insulin resistance, something close to type 2 diabetes. And then again, if you have something like processed carbohydrates in the shape of sugar or like flour or anything else, those are ultra processed foods. So there's nothing in there except the sugar, the starch, whatever. And you're going to need, uh, need micronutrients to metabolize that. So for example, if you want to build up ATP or you want to make energy, it's magnesium dependent. You're going to need vitamin D to cover that and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole bunch of micronutrients that you need to metabolize those sugars. It's, it's not like you consume the sugar and nothing else happens. You just take it and then you're fine. No, you need micronutrients to metabolize that. And that's why we have whole foods where micronutrients and, and things like carbohydrates are combined together. If you consume all the, uh, only the sugar, you're gonna use up endogenous micronutrients and in the long run, you run uh, into deficiency that way. So. That doesn't have like a short-term effect if we talk about nutrient deficiencies, but if you have like a chronic misbehavior where your sugar consumption is high and the sugar that you need to have the same pleasure regarding the dopamine response is going to raise because it's the same with every other drug. To have the same pleasure at some point, you have to increase the dosage. Then the, micro, the, the micronutrient depleting effect is also going to raise. So you'll end up with um, an out-of-balance hormonal um, micronutrient balance, a completely out of range um, pleasure center. So the dopamine serotonin responses will completely messed up. And yeah, 
you will probably end up with type 2 diabetes and everything that comes along with an insulin resistance regarding to other symptoms of metabolic syndrome and that comes along with it. So pretty much you're priming your physiology to fail at some point. When it's going to happen, it's not, not entirely sure, but it's, it's, a ticking, it's a ticking bomb that is going to um, yeah, have an effect on you at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Because you got lots, again, you've got lots of people who might be competing in bodybuilding and they believe because they have a, a large volume of muscle that is places for the you know, glycogen to go to. Um, and they might even feel that they are um, uh, exempt from type 2 diabetes. Um, mm -hmm. Do you say they can affect anyone regardless how much muscle you have? Or is it dependent on how much you consume uh, in congruency with the, the volume of muscle you have or the type of food that you are eating? Everyone can be uh, susceptible to uh, type 2 diabetes. Sure. First of all, it of course makes a difference if you have a, a treat or a consistent dietary misbehavior. That's something that we have to say as well. So having a treat once in a while won't kill you if you have your diet structure under control as a whole. Then, of course, if you're very muscular, you won't run into problems with insulin uh, resistance that easily because pretty much, in easy words, muscle tissue protects you from that. Lean muscle tissue protects you from that to some degree which doesn't mean that you can't develop it if you consistently <laughs> overdo these things. And with the professional bodybuilding of those athletes that are in top condition and probably have a very low body fat percentage over a longer period of time, I work with a lot of uh, competing athletes in my coachings and in my mentoring, and they know first, or they know that what they do <laughs> is mostly not, not, the, not a health attempt but it's about getting the most out of your physiology in the short term, but they know what they're doing. And of course you can work with certain tricks to get the best out of your looks or your performance, but that has, is a complete different discussion compared to a long-term health attempt. Um, if you want to increase your pump or your vascularity on stage and you work with, um, yeah, monosaccharides or sugars in, a, in order to achieve that and you're completely dehydrated at the same time. Of course, this is not healthy, but it will, will increase your look. So the people, that, um, the, the people that say, okay, I have a six pack and, that's because, and that just shows that I'm completely metabolic healthy, that analogy doesn't make any sense because of that, because you can think of it, I know, I know you're into that subject, but when people look their best on stage, they typically feel they're worse for a reason. So what they're doing there is not, is not, is not the healthiest option most of the time. I mean, if you're having a, a body fat percentage around the 10% and you can hold that easy for a long period of time, that might be an indicator that your overall lifestyle behavior is intact, but it, it doesn't show what exactly you're doing with your diet. Of course, we know all like, the entire subject of PEDs, et cetera, is conflicting with that as well. Um, you can trick around and just make you look appear healthier than, than you, you intrinsically are. But nevertheless, it is an, it is, um, an indicator at best, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> this, what's your thoughts on, you've got 
um, you've got glucose and you've got uh, a fructose. Mm-hmm. glucose and fructose what's the difference and how does how is it metabolized in the body what's what's different when you consume uh those two yeah easy example i mean in the end it's both hexose sugars so six carbon molecules in both sugars um the combination of those two sugars would be sucrose so the table sugar that you know from the supermarket that white powder Uh, Glucose is an aldose and uh, fructose is a ketose sugar. Those are two different chemical groups. And for that reason, they are metabolized differently. Glucose induces an insulin response. Fructose doesn't. So when you consume glucose to get it into your cell properly, you need an insulin response in order to metabolize it. When you consume fructose, it's primarily metabolized in your liver which it doesn't make it any better because that primarily causes things like fatty liver disease in the long run, um, comparable to alcohol metabolization. And yeah, that's like the comparison there. Um, they are different. Uh, they're very different, you know, um, but the negative infa- effect on the, on the physiology by overconsuming refined carbohydrates is pretty much ending up the same way, even though the, contact point might be different so that's what i'd say about that and of course like both what i want to say as well if you have a whole food which contains fructose or glucose like fruit and it's combined in its natural environment then they of course are not even close as harming as in refined form so if you eat a pear or an apple uh, which contain both glucose and fructose um what inhibits the absorption, the fast absorption is primarily, is first of all the fiber. And then you have like micronutrients along with that, which helps the metabolization. And you are much less likely to overconsume a fruit compared to something like processed carbohydrate. Of course, also the uh, unnatural accessibility to fruit all year is a bit conflicting, but that's probably what we didn't mention already. I'm not completely against the consumption of carbohydrates. That's not what I'm saying, but um, the environment of the carbohydrates matter. (laughs) Right, right. When you say environment, are you talking about the season and when when it's available? What do you mean? Yeah, both. I mean, first of all, the environment in your body. So in which physiological state you are that um, has an impact on how the, the sugar is metabolized and what effect it has and the environment of the sugar itself. So is it combined with um, things like fiber and other micronutrients? And then, of course, as a whole dietary concept, is it combined with an overall healthy lifestyle attempt or is the fruit your easy way out to say, okay, I have eaten something healthy today and now I can go ahead and eat, eat another pizza, which is like, I, I've heard that quite often that people have a weird dietary structure and just, yeah, clap yeah. themselves on the shoulder and say, okay, I did something good today. I had some blueberries and a pear afterwards, which doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> so, um, so fruit contains fructose and glucose. Yeah. And, both. Um, as, as long as it's in the fruit and it's got the, the micronutrients and the fiber, the body can effectively deal with it 
better than stripping it and having fructose by itself. Uh, exactly. The right. problem is the process. The problem, the primary problem with all those <clears throat> food components that we discussed is the processing, the industrial processing, not even the cooking in your kitchen. If you have like something like a, like an apple and you make like, I don't know, you, you, you season that for some reason, or you cook it in some way, I don't know, as a dessert or something <clears throat> that is not even close as bad as if you have industrial processing where all the micronutrients and fibers are stripped off the particular food. And then you end up with, with a white powder that we already discussed. Yeah. We've got that, that, the, the high fructose corn syrup as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Which, uh, yeah. I, I guess, uh, our version in UK, this is just um, they're just fructose syrup. What is that exactly? Fructose? Do you know? Do you know what the uh, what what's the process in that with the fructose syrup or high fructose corn syrup? Well, it's it's pretty much extracted fructose. It's just what the name says. It's fructose syrup, so very dense fructose that they sweetened their beverages with. And as mentioned, um, the fructose doesn't have an impact on <clears throat> your insulin directly. It has indirectly through uh, fatty liver disease and the unnatural metabolization in the liver of those huge amounts of, of fructose, um, but not in itself. But yeah, it's not, 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 not a complex subject or anything. The fructose syrup is, is dense fructose extracted. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty scary. Thanks for that info. Thank you. Yeah. That's really cool. Really cool. Um, look, man, it's it's been incredible. It's been incredible. I've I've I can find more questions, but I'm conscious of the time. I've had a lot of your time. Um, That's fun. You. I had a lot of fun, man. That's fine. <laughs> oh man, it's it's so great. Like guys, you need to check out uh, Rubio's uh, posts. It's uh, he's got these little graphics uh, with. It's fun. It's fun. Like he makes it easily digestible, bite-sized, fun snacks, but healthy snacks. <laughs> healthy snack. Yeah. Your healthy intellectual snack for the day. <laughs> exactly. You, know, it, you could take it and it's like, you know what? Thank you. Because there's so much information out there, so much BS out there that it's, it's very hard to filter through the garbage because everybody is... Uh, maybe uh, regurgitating and uh, recycling the same sort of rubbish, but with yours, you can sense um, uh, um, just just like a, a just a, a touch of some organic, uh, um, just um, authenticity and uh, originality as well. I love it. I love it. Thank you very much. So, where can people find you? You're definitely on Instagram. What's 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 your Instagram handle? My Instagram handle is uh, Rubio Fuerte, so just my just my name. You can find me easily on there. Also, there's the opportunity to work with me one on one. Um, right now, there are no spots available, but maybe for some time in the future, there's always the opportunity to contact me either via email. You can find the handle and the email address in my Instagram profile as well, or just send me a DM and I'll um, get back to everyone at some point. It's hard to answer all the messages. You know how it is, but. Um, I'm, I'm doing my best to just uh, stay in contact with everyone. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much is my, uh, it. My, my website is offline at the moment because I'm trying to go for some, uh, some 
bigger change and make it more professional than it used to be. So there will be something coming up, but I'll let everyone know uh, through my Instagram as well. Um, I'm having, I'm also on Facebook, but I'm essentially posting the, the same stuff <laughs> as yeah. on Instagram. So it, my, my, my prime focus is the Instagram page. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun for me to design and draw these comics at times and uh, put them out. <clears throat> so that's my prime platform. I found that for me, it's uh, the most convenient and the most fun for me to produce content. So I do it that way. <laughs> that's cool. Like the, the, the fact that you spend a lot of time on it, I can see there's no, there's no, there's no compromisation in what you do. Like because of the time that you put on there, we all benefit, put it that way. So thank you very much on that. And thank you very much for being on the Roger Snipes show. It has been amazing. And no doubt, I think, I think we should speak again. I think there's going to be, there's a lot which we can discuss, <laughs> even though we did cover a lot. Yeah, thank you so much, first of all, for having me. And definitely, at some point in the future, we can definitely have another chat and uh, find some, some new subjects to discuss. Would be a pleasure. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. And uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun for me as well. Thanks a lot. God bless. You take care, sir. Take care. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in today's episode. Any guests which I have on the show really provide some golden nuggets and useful life-changing tips. So always feel free to check out their social media platforms or website links, which will be written in the show notes. These shows are financed by my sponsors, so your contributions are always greatly appreciated. Any clickable links with discount codes will not only provide you with the best services, but will help out the podcast too. So thank you. If you do like the Roger Snipe Show podcasts, then why not give it a review? A five star would be awesome, but some great feedback on what you liked about the show or what you would have liked to hear would be helpful too. Until next time. <laughs>